0: Welcome to the investment manager podcast. We're here to help you learn more about a wide variety of investment managers, their theories and their investment outlook. in order to challenge your own. My guest today is Katie Stockton. Katie is founder and managing partner of Fairlead Strategies, an independent research firm and investment advisor focused on technical analysis. Katie has spent more than 20 years on Wall Street providing technical research and advice to institutional investors. She is the Portfolio Manager for the Fairlead Tactical Sector ETF and is a contributor to CNBC and other financial news networks. Join me as we discuss how and why Katie got into technical analysis, the types of technical indicators that Katie uses, and launching a business as a female founder. All opinions expressed by the podcast host and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or business interests. Both the host and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Casey, great to have you here today. Good to be with you. I'm really intrigued by the work that you do. And... What I would like to do is to cover a lot of that today, but also to talk about the person behind the investor, which I don't think sees enough coverage. So tell me about where you grew up and your background.
1: Yeah. I mean, where I grew up, gosh, yeah, we start at the beginning, right? Uh, you know, So I had, was exposed, I'd say, pretty early on in my college career to finance. I started my career in San Francisco. Um, But my college was based in Virginia, and it was a small sort of liberal school, and yet it was one of 12 universities at the time that offered coursework in my discipline. So that's where it all began, I would say, was in college when I was exposed to finance. You know, finance also sort of resonated with me in the way I thought about the world. I was always a math nerd, and I liked things that would be balanced. You know, I want to know A plus B equals C, And the discipline that I've come around to is very much in following with that type of mindset where we have outcomes that are more objective than subjective. So I'd say it really started with my college career. But if you're asking more personally where I grew up, I grew up in Connecticut and that's where I'm sitting right now in sunny Connecticut. We're in Stanford, which is a city not too far from New York City. So we are essentially like a commuter town outside of New York City. It's about a 45-minute train into town. And I spent much of my career in town, in New York City, but now it's nice to be in the suburbs.
0: It's interesting because I think Stanford is almost the, the financial suburb of New York City in a way. There are so many financial firms there. I wonder if it is where people go to calm things down and take a slower pace or a slower outlook on the investment world and life.
1: Yeah, I would say so, too. And I mean, there's also Greenwich, Connecticut, which is a very sort of well-to-do suburb, one of the first towns right outside of New York. And it became the town it was because of taxes. Taxes being more favorable once you cross the border into Connecticut. So that became sort of a hub for investment managers in a way, and also a place where folks can get out of the city and get a little property. And of course, there's a lot of surrounding towns from Stamford where you can It's far from rural, let's put it that way. There is still a lot of congestion around here, but it does feel a little bit more relaxed, I would say. And Stanford has a very good investment services community. It's actually quite strong and we all see each other somewhat often. And it's really kind of nice. You feel like there is a local community around you, not the Greenwich office, Stanford. But we do still often find ourselves going to the city for one thing or other. And um, now that I don't go there every day, I enjoy it even more because I've always loved New York City. But now when I go, it's a little bit more special than having to shop there every day.
0: In your very early days, so like growing up, were there any form of influences in terms of investment, financial, what's the family background? Often I hear that some view the market in a very skeptical way. Other times I hear that people are maybe second-generation investors. How was it for you?
1: You know, I, I wasn't inspired by any family members to go into this line of business. So it wasn't an inspiration in that way. And in fact, most of my family is in healthcare, so <laughs> which to me is, is pretty much the anti of what I do. You know, the thought of watching a surgery on TV always just that made me cringe. And there my sister was doing the same. so. It really wasn't inspired by my family, but certainly they were supportive of my academic upbringing, right? And then just in terms of the way I think about the world, obviously they shaped that as well. And then decision-making to get me to the place where I had that coursework at my university, obviously they kept part in that too. So inspiration on that front, more in how the path got me there, but not really invest in professionals. And now when I talk about technical analysis, They're often sort of glazing over and and saying, what on earth are you saying? But I think they sort of trust the process of expertise. And it is a very narrow expertise, I would say, within the field of finance. So it it was very early on that I think I had to decide that this is what I was going to do. Initially, I was thinking I would go and get my MBA and I even studied for the exam. But then I realized I was already sort of well-established in what my expertise was and what I liked to do most, so I never really pursued the MBA for that reason. And thankfully, I was able to kind of stay on that course.
0: In university, what led you into finance and international business?
1: Yeah, the international case was actually pretty interesting. The professors at the time really were very hyper-focused on Japan, so it wasn't as international and worldly. And it seemed a little bit more narrow-focused given the time. Quite sure I'm, you know, now it's different than that, but. You know, the finance piece, which was, again, something that sort of resonated with me in the way I thought about the world or my the way my brain worked, appealed to me because of that, because sort of the mathy element to it, if you will. And as the university had an undergraduate business school, I went into college thinking I actually wanted to go into political science. And then when I took a political science course, I realized I really didn't know what I was talking about. (laughs) And I was not interested in doing that. And so I very quickly kind of morphed over to the undergraduate business school, and there were four course tracks sort really of marketing and accounting and finance and economics. And it was just the one that appealed to me most. And it was actually quite unusual for females to make that choice. And, and it still really is even to this day. And I don't know why exactly that happens or that's the case, but my hope is to see more and more young women inspired to move into finance because it's really rewarding. And, you know, I've never had a dull moment in my career it's, especially in being so market-focused, everything's really dynamic.
0: Do you think that part of the reason why women tend to shy away from the investment business and trade and so forth is to do with risk-taking? Do you have a different view?
1: I feel like that's pretty widely accepted as a view. I can't approach it scientifically, but I would say it generally seems to be accepted that men are greater risk takers by their nature. And um, I certainly would consider myself to be pretty conservative in a lot of ways. So and I'm not an example against that by any stress. It, it, as it pertains to making the decision to go into finance, I don't know that that would be really a function. At least it wasn't for me. So I guess that I'm really the only one I can speak to I don't even know, quite frankly, if if in my late teens, if I had that self-awareness to even know if I was conservative or a recipe at that stage. But, you know, I felt it was appealing because of the math element. And I also liked the prospects, right? The job prospects that could come from that. I mean, going on to Wall Street was very desirable in the late 90s. And that's where I saw myself. And as much as I think there was a reputation at times for the old boys network or Wall Street being that Gordon Gecko type of landscape. It, it really never was that for me, thankfully. It, it was not an accurate portrayal of what was reality for me. It doesn't mean that doesn't exist. But in fact, I think being a woman provided me opportunity, if anything.
0: Thinking briefly about university now, were you in the lindenberg lab all the time? Is that what spot your interest? Because I think the term finance, it can be so wide-ranging. You can into accountancy. You can move it to buy side, sell side, investment business, market making, M&A activity. There's all sorts of things, obviously, within that broad term of finance. What led you specifically to the markets?
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's funny because I wish we'd had a Bloomberg Lab when I was there. It was built pretty far after I left. So I don't know, that, that probably dates me. But now they have a great Bloomberg Lab. So it was almost accidental. I would say that I was exposed to the discipline of technical analysis, which is my focus. I had an internship. And of course, it's very common to take on an internship in junior year or between sophomore and junior year in college. And that internship was with a wealth manager. So Payne Weber was the firm. And we worked under advisors and the advisors would consume research. And one of the advisors on his desk had... Some X's and O's on a piece of paper. And I said, what is that? i kind of curious. And it was point and figure chart. So it was a form of technical analysis and mm. it was kind of visually appealing to me, you know, without really knowing what it meant. It, it obviously turned up some questions and mm. they explained it to me, but also as it pertains to the market, but also explained that it was a local firm. So ultimately I moved from that internship to an internship with this firm that was providing the technical analysis research. So. Even in junior year of college, I was working for a technical firm, and it was funny because I, I would try to explain that. Even my teachers were a little bit, they, they were mystified as to what I was doing exactly. <laughs> so it was an opportunity for me to almost introduce the charting that we were doing to the business school and also to student managed investment funds from sort of an academic perspective. As you know, fundamental analysis is widely accepted and taught. But technical analysis really was not, except at this university and a handful of others, there was a pioneering professor who had brought in coursework and also in doing so had brought in a lot of experts. So rather than teaching coursework himself, the professor was bringing in practitioners, so the technical analysts from Wall Street. And some of them are really dynamic. In fact, Ralph Acampora, he you might have heard of, was he's kind of like the godfather of technical analysis in a way he came down and stood in front of our classroom and tore the wall street journal in half and said you don't need this anymore and so there was the controversy that had us all paying attention right and you know this is spoken to a group that was very tied to exactly all the analysis that would have been derived from that i I thought there was a little controversy in it which was appealing to me at that age so it felt different it felt unique but also it had that dynamic elements that the markets bring because it was really very price sensitive. And as you know, it just moves every day. So part of my job at, at this internship was to draw the X's and O's for the point figure chart by hand. And so every day I was checking in the prices and deciding if the price move was big enough to dictate an annotation on the chart. And while it sounds tedious, it was one of the best ways to get close to the market. But I also think the appeal is simply in the fact that that you invest in something and you can make money from it, right? So I was intrigued by just the prospects of these trends and and being able to follow these trends and also as a way, and I don't know if I would have thought of it this way at the time, but now I think of it this way, is, is to manage risk, to know that you're going against the prevailing trend. So the price analysis to me was what really brought me to the market as something that I was fascinated by. When I was in college, I was really very interested in commodities, especially. I thought that it was just really neat that you could actually chart something like uh, soybean prices, and not really knowing exactly why somebody is trading soybeans at the time. I just thought it was neat that you had these physical commodities and the prices that you could track in this manner. Ultimately, I, of course, morphed into equities more so. But I thought that was just really interesting to see these trends and in modernies and effects, being for the deep liquid global market really lent themselves very well to charting.
0: Now, already you've struck apart something that I really wanted to talk to you about, because technical analysis is not widely accepted or adopted within the investment space, particularly wealth and management space too. Technical analysis typically is associated and paired with trading, so First of all, the use of technical analysis within the environment that you've described is quite novel to me. Was the firm that you were at there, were they very much at the forefront of things in using that? Because even today in 2023, I think within the investment space, very few will admit to using technical analysis. Fundamental analysis is very much at the forefront because it's tied very much to people and opinions and narrative, whereas technical analysis is something that's very quantifiable.
1: Yeah, I think quantifiable is a good way to describe it. And I do think there is growing acceptance, but I agree there are very few investment strategies that are publicized as being driven by technical analysis. The firm that I worked for called Dorsey Wright & Associates, and they're still around doing the same thing today, they were, I'd say, probably best described initially as an independent research provider rather than an investment manager. Dorothy Wright was a pioneer in that they did ultimately develop exchange traded funds and they had a whole family of funds which they have been sold to the NASDAQ but they had among I don't know if they were the first or among the first ETFs that were focused on technical analysis and not being shy to say that that is the discipline that we're driving these strategies and, and these are very successful and good performance in some of these exchange-traded funds that are still around and and have been very well received by the market. There's still not a whole lot of exchange-traded funds or mutual funds out there that are based primarily on technical analysis, but I think we will see more of them. And I think we will see more and more fund managers incorporate technical analysis into their style in a way that they don't need to be ashamed of. (laughs) Um, I do think there's been this growing acceptance over the course of my, say, 25-year career or so, where folks are no longer looking at technical analysis as something that's anything different, honestly, than any other kind of analysis, which we're using past historical data, pricing data in this case, to try to understand prevailing trends, manage risk, identify areas of potential buying and selling pressure. And when you think of it as, as sort of a balanced way to understand supply and demand for a security all of a sudden, the voodoo part of it goes away. I think it, folks have realized that it's now essentially something that has validity. There's plenty of white papers out there to suggest that it has academic backing to it. And I think the more information and confirmation information that we have out there, I just think it's going to keep that genuine interest. And I mean, listen, like CNBC and other networks, they're talking about technical analysis. It feels like half of the day. So the more information flow around technical analysis, I think we'll just keep that level of acceptance growing and going forward.
0: Changing it perhaps slightly, what led you to focusing on the equity asset class as specialist? And considering you had early exposure to commodities and several other asset, asset classes, what grew you to the equity asset class?
1: So I, I think maybe it was demand in part. So my first job in San Francisco out of college, they were an equity focused investment manager, and so it was the job availability on the equity side was really I think how I got steered that way. Maybe had a better network, I would say, in that world, and uh, my internship was more focused on that too. I just had that sort of interest in commodities, and I still do. Listen, I, you know, we still publish on commodities, not the degree that we do on the equities, but so I was steered to it through my career choices. And as you can imagine in San Francisco, going through the bubble, it was actually a pretty exciting time to be focused on the equity market. You know, watching mm. these technology stocks kind of like go parabolic on the charts is really a fascinating way to start my career.
0: Thinking about your career history there, you've had, I'd seen experience as a, a chart market technician or chief market technician, at least a technical strategist, and then technical analysts. So I know that secretly technical analysis is used more broadly than is advertised. What exactly was your role within larger organizations in producing technical analysis? What was the use case for the work that you would do?
1: Yeah, and and it was kind of interesting because there rarely ever, I would say was, but even to some degree is an open position for a technical analyst, right? There's not that many jobs available for a technical research analyst. They are out there, but it wasn't nearly as common as an investment banking analyst or a fundamental analyst. And so in a way, I had to get somewhat creative to be able to apply technical analysis in my various roles over the course of my career. And so those roles ranged to some degree, but again, that common thread was technical analysis and contributing in different manners. So I would say the bulk of my career was spent as a publishing technical analyst, so an actual analyst who's focused on charting the market. But I did have a stint as a trader sitting on a trading desk and contributing primarily short-term technical analysis to help with market timing. That was certainly a role that it makes sense to apply technical analysis in. And I think you'd find that a lot of you know hedge funds and investment managers do have traders who are very attuned to the chart. They're using it to facilitate their day job. And often even get very passionate about it and use it for other things, maybe to send some thoughts to the portfolio manager, that type of thing. So as a trader doing technical analysis on the side, it was certainly very relevant. And then as a sales assistant very early in my career, working for an investment manager, investment advisor, they also just liked to have that technical opinion to give them a reason to stay in touch with their clients, to give the market color and to add value in a way that maybe otherwise they wouldn't be doing. So so I think it was just a matter of always having something to say about the market. So much the beauty of technical analysis is that we can have an opinion on anything that has a price. You can talk about anything, even if it's an obscure small cat stock in a different country. I mean, you can have an opinion on that too. So There's a beauty to that because it makes it very transferable, the discipline. So I think there was a big appeal in the fact that somebody could say, hey, Katie, what do you think of Apple chart? And I could have an opinion right away, and that opinion would be based on what I considered to be really math, just technical indicators.
0: Because of the environments that you worked in, obviously it was a multidisciplinary approach as far as the firm-wide approach. Was there ever any infiltration of thinking in regards to macroeconomics or alternative investment styles? Were you very much focused on the technicals? Do you take any macro factors into account?
1: When I was on the technical strategy team, when I was publishing analyst, there was always a macro strategist sitting right next to me. So, So that was sort of the beauty of it. I could soak up what they're doing and often collaborate with them. We would have macro strategists and derivative strategists fundamental strategist. So it was this top-down sort of approach that drew us all together. And it was really neat when you'd have a view that aligned, right? If you had, even sometimes like a price objective on the S&P 500 might make sense from a fundamental perspective for totally different reasons. So we found that there was a really nice sort of symbiotic way to incorporate the different disciplines. I am not a macro. nor any that have any expertise outside of technical analysis, which really is my primary discipline. But I have a lot of, I'd say now, friends in the business who send me their research and I really trust them and follow their discipline through through their lens. So I definitely incorporate that sort of macro input from trusted advisors in the same way that a lot of us do in other disciplines. And in terms of influencing what I'm writing about or what I'm investing in, I would say that to a very small degree, I try not to be ignorant to things that are going on in the world or, you know, fundamentals or earnings dates or political events, that type of thing. But I I try not to let it cloud my decision making as it pertains to the price based analysis, because if you think about it, all of the information out there. It really does boil down to a buy or sell decision. And so not to oversimplify, but it does all get incorporated. In what at least what people know at this time, it gets worked into their decision-making process. So what I'm trying to measure is not all the input, but the output from the decision-making. So it's my way of looking at price and saying, how is market psychology, which is influenced by all of these other factors, manifesting itself in price? And, and in a way that's what technical analysis is trying to do. It's trying to measure the behavioral elements of the market through price analysis.
0: Absolutely. I think that's the biggest thing that's overlooked as well because of the, I'm not being critical of fundamental analysis, obviously plays a huge and vital part in the way of looking at things. But I think perhaps sometimes where people underestimate technical analysis and maybe dismiss it as drawing funny lines on a chart. Well, actually, what we're doing there is we're analyzing group think. We're looking at collective people around a given market and the psychological points at which there are buyers, sellers, and beyond. I think people really underestimate that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it's absolutely key. and It's in how people are thinking about something, not in what that something is necessarily then manifests itself in their decision. So it's in folks' perceptions of the data, not the data itself. And so when we have, let's say, something that's really widely followed, like an FOMC announcement, we don't spend much time trying to predict the announcement itself. But what we care about is to maybe step aside for a minute and let the macro folks have their platform and watch the reaction, because the reaction can be incredibly telling. We want to see how the market is perceiving that data. And that can be information that could actually have some implication for the future.
0: We spoke a lot about your employed work, but let's move forward now into developing your own business and how that happened. At what point or what stage did you start to think about going your own way? Was there any other signs or opportunities to display entrepreneurial flair? How did it come to pass?
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, I I had a great career on Wall Street and I value relationships and uh, the the education that I received from that. You know, I think in a way it's always been in my mind that I would love to have my own company and, and do it on my own. So Maybe that was always there, sort of an entrepreneurial spirit, if you will. But I also felt like the market environment was sort of conducive to it where we started to see on Wall Street compression in commission dollars. So, And it's just a natural progression in any cycle that you see, you know, as technology improves things, that the prices ultimately need to go down. And so we did see that. We saw commission dollars shrink. And then there was some regulatory developments that affected how investment managers were paying for research. So I felt like there was a little bit of a shift on that front and that it wasn't necessarily a positive thing for Wall Street Research Department. And it wasn't something that directly affected me, but I, it was, felt like maybe not the best model to be uh, adhering to these, or not adhering to, but depending on these commission dollars, which were shrinking. I felt that a subscription research model was probably a little bit better. And where someone, if they want to receive the research rather than promising to pay for it through commission dollars, that they that a lower price point pay for it up front and they pay for it until they don't need it or until they've decided they can't use it anymore. So it's a little bit more simple in the model, that description model. And I felt like it was better as it pertains to technical research, which has a very general appeal. And that's the other key point is that I felt that While my career on Wall Street is where I really learned my methodology and and crafted it, I also felt like there was a broader appeal beyond Wall Street on Main Street. And I had to leave Wall Street essentially to bring the research to Main Street. And I also had to make sure that it was at a price point that was palatable to retail investors. So that was part of the impetus as well to broaden the audience in the same way that the media networks have done. Where they really do focus a lot on technical analysis because there is a good general interest in that and it also can add that color to the market especially if it's a sort of a slow news day.
0: Now what's interesting about that is that you took the leap of pay but you actually moved to a different segment of the market because one may posit that you could rely on some connections Mm -hmm. and relationships that you built throughout the years but if you push straight to the retail segment Perhaps relationships there are less strong. How did you go from day one without too much of a retail following to build that to the point that you're at today?
1: Yeah, and, and we still had great institutional supporters, right? And when I started for lead strategies, we, we had a great foundation and institutional relationships that would support us in our endeavors. So so that was what made it possible essentially to make the leap. And yet the growth really does come for us now through the, primarily, I'd say, investment advisor network. So both individuals, but I'd say even more so investment advisors who are trying to incorporate technical analysis in their practice to some degree, at least. So that's where our growth has been. To reach that network, help that we've always done a whole lot of media. Right now, I'm a CNBC contributor, but I've been doing CNBC for many, many years and other networks as well, and often quoted in publications. And part of that I attribute to the fact that I can talk about anything. (laughs) So, you know, Bitcoin for one, Bitcoin was maybe a harder thing for folks to get, quote, form because there was not as many people that were experts in that field. And I'm certainly not a Bitcoin expert, but I can certainly have a technical opinion on it. So, you know, when it came to uh, sort of media relationships, I think they appreciated that we could give them a, a sort of a takeaway on something that they're writing about, irrespective of what that asset class was. So we've developed some good, media relationships, and that's really a fantastic way to reach the the main street type of audience. Otherwise, it's just been organic and marketing and brand building and also sliding the wave of technical analysis and how it's been more widely accepted just by other reasons there's an organization, the CMT Association or Chartered Market Technician Association. They are our professional organization founded in part by Ralph Agampura, who is the, the man who tore that Wall Street Journal in half. And um, they have a designation just like the CFA. It's called the CMT. And I received that in 2001. And over the course of my career, they've also been a great Platform for me to grow my my own personal brand and business, and to learn and to network, and so leveraging those types of relationships as well has been really helpful.
0: So, if we fast forward from there, you established and built the research based business. At what point, or well, particularly, what was the catalyst in terms of moving from offering a research based service to then actually moving into portfolio management? What drove that?
1: Well, gosh, it was such a natural byproduct, I feel like, of what I was already doing. So the impetus for developing a technical model was not actually to have an investable product. It was to facilitate some client relationships. So there was more quantitatively oriented clients who were really interested in the indicators that we were using and the methodology that we were adhering to and wanted to see how it fit into their own model. So we had some great partners in that way and in, in developing the model, folks that would give us advice. And it sort of, it was a two way street where we would help them integrate some technical indicators and talk through how to go from something that, that on the surface is pretty subjective to more objective trading rules. They helped us develop in a way through sort of the early stage model that then became the model that we ultimately turned into our investable product. So it was really sort of driven by the client, but we already had a methodology, I would say, that was very suitable for an investment management. I I think it's something that just needed to um, go from providing research to them having sort of a more holistic strategy, right, with portfolio construction and with management. So it was a very natural byproduct of what we were already doing with our consulting service and and what have you. And it, it did take More than a couple of years to get to the place where we felt like we had something that was right for this product. But it was actually a really interesting learning experience for me because creating a rules based system, as I'm sure you probably know, is not easy. I mean, there's a lot of iterations that you go through and, you know, the dead ends that you hit, but it was also a great reality check on the pros and cons of various indicators and how we combine those indicators. So it was really a very interesting process and really a great time for me and my career on self-reflection as it pertains to the methodology.
0: How was it to take the financial leap of faith in terms of launching an active ETF? Because you build a client base for many years, very valued. There's seemingly demand there. There may be some early intention or interest to commit X or Y. You don't really know it's happening until it's happened. And running an active ETA is not without significant costs. Of course, any vehicle bears significant costs. In my opinion, you've built an AUM base in a fairly short space of time that you can be proud of.
1: And I, it wouldn't have been possible without partners that so we have a partner in our ETF who operate somewhat behind the scenes, you know, we're the portfolio manager and, and we're also doing a lot of marketing around the exchange traded funds, but they serve as everything else really. So they've helped us have the infrastructure as a small company, or at least the backup infrastructure can make it possible. So it was in a, our partnership that we got the confidence essentially that we could have, you know, enough of an in- infrastructure to support it, and to grow it, to grow it in a way that could make it sustainable. And, and I, uh, you know, you, you strike a chord because it is scary. It is definitely a leap of faith to suggest um, if we can get to this break even point. And it does create a, a little bit of anxiety <laughs> around, around growth. Because as you mentioned, it is a very expensive proposition. But to us, it was worth it because we felt like the product had an investable appeal that's very general, a great sort of top down strategy that we felt our clients were already doing themselves, but with some limited success. So we felt like we had a very, I'd say, marketable strategy and very simple in a way, not simple in the model, but simple in the goals and the the potential outcomes. So, you know, we felt like we could take our sophisticated technical analysis but package it in a way that would really kind of foster a strategy that was appealing to a lot of people, a lot of advisors, especially. So we felt like we had a very good marketable product, a great partnership. Our, the advisor on the fund is Carrie Street Partners, and we are the sub-advisor. And so without Carry Street Partners, that, that wouldn't have been possible to get to that place where we could proceed.
0: Now, in terms of investment, many people would say, "Wow." Well, I can't particularly beat the market, so I can just buy in the market. And actually, over the long run, I could just buy and hold the S and P five hundred, sit tight, maybe have a wild ride, and eventually I'll come out ahead. I'll do okay. So, what led you to diverting away from the buy and hold strategy, in so much as doing things at an asset level? What led you toward the rotation style?
1: Yeah, yeah. And remember, you're talking to a technical analyst. <laughs> we don't often adhere to a buy and hold strategy long term, it's really difficult when we're not only super close to the markets, but really in to sitting through downtrend. And so that's where I felt like, um, you know, sort of my personality and my discipline made it essential that there was some real attention to risk management. And I felt like there was the best way to get there was through asset allocation we could always look for a relative performance on sector funds. The fund is called Fair Lead Tactical Sector ETF. So our primary right. goal is to leverage sector rotation and momentum. But there are times at which the market, which is really um, sort of top down in its orientation, especially in bear market cycles, that none of the sectors are working. So we, we don't just want to have relative performance. We want to try to really protect in those environments So not hiding in sectors that are going down with the market, but rather moving into other asset classes that tend to do better than the S&P 500 index for one during a bear market cycle. So uh, historically, we looked for those asset classes and we found what we felt like was the best combination of those to outperform in the bear market cycles, of which, of course, we believe that we're in one and have been in one for about a year plus now. And so we wanted to have a choice, a place to hide in that kind of environment. So the buy and hold strategy, as you can imagine, does capture a ton of drawdowns. And these drawdowns just set you at a much worse position, a much lower position from which you have to climb back, right? So you're taking on that risk. And with a long-term strategy, you're, you don't have to trade a whole lot, right? You can, you know, trade once a month and still avoid those major drawdowns in a way that, over a long-term period, you can build on your returns and beat the market, and also do so with lower volatility, so a, a lower standard deviation, and with far lower drawdowns. And that, to me, was really key: is to have a strategy. That benefits from the primary, I'd say, takeaway that we're often trying to get from the chart, which is: is this a bear market? Is this a real downtrend that we want to be on the sidelines for? And that's why we had that asset allocation piece to it. So it's sector rotation, but also asset allocation, all of which is driven by technical analysis and you know back testing our model.
0: Something you said there struck me. So regarding the current market environment, your view obviously is that we are in a bear market environment still. What do you use to establish that view?
1: Yeah, so um, it's my methodology. So looking at various charts, and it's not as simple as looking at the major indices in the US, like the S&P 500, and saying, well, I think it's going up or down. You know, it's really just like with anyone's discipline, it's a collection of factors, right? We're looking at major indices. We're looking at their constituents. We're looking at market internal measures like breadth and leadership and sentiment and volume. You know, we're looking at support and resistance levels. We're looking at technical indicators. And it's really all of that taken together that we arrive at our views. So there is subjectivity and not necessarily the indicators themselves. Like everybody can look at a 200-day moving average as one and say that's going up or down. It's not as simple as that. It's in how you're combining all the various inputs to arrive at a conclusion. And that's why some technicians can be completely in disagreement in a market environment that to one might seem obviously bullish and to another might seem obviously bearish. It's in how you're combining all these inputs. So we are very heavy on the usage of technical indicators because that's that mathematical piece where it is often sort of a black and white takeaway where you have a buy signal or a sell signal based on a crossover or some such, or you have an overbought downturn and an oversold uptron, or you have a breakout above resistance or a breakdown below support. There's all these types of inputs that can really help you identify catalysts, technical catalysts, and things to act upon and also to understand when risk is heightened. So it's a collection of factors, and that's what we spend a lot of our days doing? You're just looking at the chart for these various factors.
0: Beyond market analysis, what's your view on taking macro factors and quantifying those? So for example, the Fed's balance sheet expansion or contraction, we may correlate some movement there to the market itself. What's your view on taking factors like that into consideration?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, it's the market that is driven largely by the Fed and their decisions, and it's also driven largely by long-term earnings trends. And so, you know, we have certainly inputs on that front, people that are giving us information there that we want to make sure that we're aware of. But in terms of the decision making, we're not trying to understand why something is happening, quite frankly, we really want to understand just what is happening, right? So we'll kind of leave it to the others to determine why something is happening. I'll be a little cynical here and say that once we figure out why something happening is often or happening, it, it sometimes changes. <laughs> so we spend more time in the what than the why, but we do believe in sort of a holistic investment process when you're Investing in individual stocks especially, you really should have that understanding of the fundamentals of the company. When you're doing something that's more top-down in the orientation, then technical analysis and macro work is more sufficient. But you really do want to have that fundamental backing to your decision-making when investing in individual stocks. So we wholeheartedly think that that's important. And in that case, it would be technical analysis as more of a complementary discipline. With our strategy with the TAC ETF, we feel that we're essentially rewarding the best companies as evidenced by their market cap in the S&P 500. So when we have sector exposure, the market has already rewarded certain companies with a bigger market cap. And that market cap weighting that's inherent to the S&P 500 ETF that we're using, uh, our fund of fund. That we are trusting to be the fundamental piece for us So, because it is more of a sector-focused fund versus an individual stock fund. But we are fully aware that we're taking positions at times that are heavier in certain stocks, right? So as an example, right now we hold the Energy Sector Spider ETF. And in that ETF, of course, there's some very large constituents like Chevron. And so we're always aware that the market has rewarded Chevron and others with large market cap, probably for good fundamental reasons.
0: Regarding your ETF and management, I think it's better to still class you as an emerging manager because you've just reached the first anniversary of the ETF itself. What advice do you have for emerging (laughs) managers, particularly those from underrepresented backgrounds?
1: Oh, yeah. And I've learned a whole lot about this. First of all, there's so many great organizations led by great people that are helping emerging managers so i've had the experience of going to a couple of conferences and for one 100 women in finance has a great outreach and support system for managers and emerging managers there's the investment hold on i want to say the investment diversity exchange or tide they are doing great things on that front and helping bring attention to emerging managers and diverse managers So there's a lot of great organizations that have really made that their charge. And I think for advice would be to learn about those places to show up and to network and ride that wave. I I think that the wave is already there. I think there's already a great push for large asset managers to pay more attention to the smaller emerging managers and, and to do so in part to diversify their approach. And I think that that's very smart. I think it. we all know that diversity of thinking is, is, tends to be beneficial. And so I, I think that's kind of what's happening here. And there's a wave towards that. I, obviously, we have a long way of, of going in terms of seeing the growth there. But I think it's a matter of uh, sort of leveraging the institutions that are making strides and creating support systems and letting folks that have been through it, you know, share their experiences, I guess. and And, and in terms of sharing our experiences, You know, we're one year into it, but TAC was launched in March of 22, and we just hit our one-year anniversary, which, yeah, we are very proud of of that and of of our growth since then. But listen, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's really something that we have a lot more to to attention to give to, and it's not easy, quite frankly. It's it's actually a lot harder than I expected it to be in terms of how to get the word out and reach the right people. So I think it's, it's just a matter of having stick-to-itiveness and realizing sometimes that, you know, there's a lot that you don't know and to leverage the people that have been doing it a lot longer.
0: Hi, who were your biggest inspirations in the investment business and who could people learn more from?
1: Oh, wow. There's so many people. There's so many technicians, especially. And I think that's where I'll have to give my most credit is in all my mentors. Mike Hurley, Rick Benson, yor Tom Dorsey, Ralph Accampora, Louise Yamada. I'm sure I'm forgetting some, so forgive me. But there's really the technicians that have sort of preceded me, and all of them have had such grand accomplishments in terms of breaking through those barriers that you cited earlier in our conversation where a technical analysis wasn't always sort of well-received even from very well-respected investment banks that had departments. So I think there was always those challenges and that there is some pioneers that kind of have forged the path for success stories otherwise. But, you know, we have a lot of great macro strategists that have inspired us too. Tony Dwyer, Michael Darda, Danielle DiMartino. So I feel very blessed to be friends with these people who have deep expertise in their own fields and are willing to share their advice at times with me and you know when things when i actually do want to know why something is happening right so really grateful for all my mentors
0: katie this has been fascinating to me i hope that you enjoyed being here today and i will keep a close eye on your fortunes moving forward particularly if you have a venture into europe let me know and i'll keep a keen eye out
1: We're, we're working on it thanks anthony
0: thanks for listening make sure to subscribe to the Investment Manager podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps the show.